Hey everyone, welcome back to all my listeners. Hope you're all having a great day so far. And if it's your first time finding me, thanks so much and welcome. Welcome to episode two of my fourth season. Today is Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. My name is Sonal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Now, I really hope you've all had a great Labor Day weekend. I know I enjoyed long overdue time with my family. But of course, I also spent some quiet time focusing on gearing up for all the annual changes headed our way in this space of healthcare. All of our new professional coder coding books, those CPT and ICD-10-CM and Hixpix books. I'm used to this hullabaloo every autumn season, but it really is a whirlwind that I have to mentally prepare for so the planning for education sessions can be thoughtful yet specifically geared for those providers and practices with big changes for 2022 coding. Now, in my compliance tip today, I dive into a new series I've developed on back to basics with signature requirements. And today is also the second Wednesday of the month where I share my very newsworthy OIG work plan updates. And I round out today's episode with a remarkable quote on illumination from the beautiful literary words of Anais Nin. If you checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss another episode. Please write in a review and kindly drop me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. And as always, a friendly disclaimer. Remember, I'm bringing you the news, current healthcare industry news, my compliance tips and recommendations based on my over 10 years of experience in front office, back end, coding, and billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. These are my opinions alone and are not to be construed as legal advice. So, let's get into newsworthy. I wanted to go over the nine new August 2021 updates made to the OIG work plan. The first is titled Reported Experiences of Staff at Fort Bliss Emergency Intake Site. It's an audit from the Office of Evaluation and Inspections. A surge in arrivals of unaccompanied children in the spring of 2021 resulted in a dramatic rise in referrals to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the ORR, a program office in the Administration for Children and Families. To accommodate these children, ORR established emergency intake sites, or EISs, 
which are temporary unlicensed mass care provider facilities designed to meet the basic standards of care for children on a short-term basis when ORR's permanent licensed facilities and influx care facilities are unable to accommodate new arrivals. ORR opened its largest EIS at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas on March 30, 2021 to care for up to 10,000 children. In the months since Fort Bliss EIS opened, several individuals have raised concerns about the quality of case management provided there and its negative impact on children's safety and well-being. This review will analyze interviews and on-site observations regarding case management challenges at Fort Bliss that may have impeded the safe and timely release of children to sponsors. This oversight will help ensure that Fort Bliss and other EISs provide adequate case management services. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2021. Now, the second OIG work plan update for August 2021 is titled Review of the FDA's Accelerated Approval Pathway. This is an audit coming from multiple offices. The FDA recently approved Aduhelm to treat patients with Alzheimer's disease using the Accelerated Approval Pathway. The Accelerated Approval Pathway allows the FDA to approve drugs that treat serious conditions and that fill an unmet medical need based on a surrogate endpoint, which is a marker that is thought to predict a clinical benefit. The FDA's approval of Aduhelm raised concerns due to the alleged scientific disputes within the FDA, the advisory committee's vote against approval, allegations of an inappropriately close relationship between the FDA and the industry, and the FDA's use of the accelerated approval pathway. In response to these concerns, the OIG will assess how the FDA implements the accelerated approval pathway. This will include reviewing interactions between the FDA and outside parties, as well as other aspects of the process, such as deciding on this pathway and scientific disputes. OIG will also review the FDA's relevant policies and procedures, determine compliance with them, and make appropriate findings and recommendations based on a sample of drugs approved using the accelerated approval pathway, which will include Aduhelm. The OIG will not assess the scientific appropriateness of the FDA's approval of any of the drugs under review. This work may result in multiple reports. The final reports are expected in fiscal year 2023. Now, the third OIG work plan update for August 2021 is titled Data Snapshot Review of Beneficiaries' Relationships with Providers for Telehealth Services. This analysis is stemming from the Office of Evaluation and Inspections. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, both Congress and the Department of Health and Human Services, that's our HHS, expanded access to telehealth for a wide range of services. This expansion enhanced the ability of our healthcare providers to offer care to Medicare patients remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic. During the expansion, HHS used its enforcement discretion to relax the requirement that a beneficiary must have an established relationship with the provider to receive certain telehealth services. 
This data snapshot will describe the extent to which Medicare patients had established relationships with providers for whom they received telehealth services. OIG will look for any differences in these relationships between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage and among the different types of telehealth services. This final report is expected in fiscal year 2022. Now, the fourth OIG work plan update is titled Audit of Medicare Emergency Department Evaluation and Management Services. This review is from the Office of Audit Services. An emergency department is defined as an organized hospital-based facility for providing unscheduled or episodic services to patients who present for immediate medical attention. Certain current procedural terminology, that's our CPT codes, should only be used when a patient is seen in an emergency department and the services described by the healthcare CPT coding system code definition are provided. Medicare reimburses physicians based on a patient's documented needs at the time of a visit. All evaluation and management ENM services are reported to Medicare, must be adequately documented so that medical necessity is clearly evident. This review will determine whether Medicare payments to providers for emergency department ENM services were appropriate, medically necessary, and paid in accordance with Medicare requirements. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2022. Now, the fifth OIG work plan update for August 2021 is titled Superfund Financial Activities at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. This analysis will be conducted by the Office of Audit Services. The National Institutes of Health's National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, the NIEHS, provides Superfund Research Program funds for university-based multidisciplinary research on human health and environmental issues related to hazardous substances. Federal law and regulations require that OIG conduct an annual audit of the Institute's Superfund activities, and you can find this in the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act of 1980, 42 U.S.C. Section 9611-K. OIG will review payments, obligations, reimbursements, and other uses of Superfund monies by the NIEHS. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2022. Now, the sixth OIG work plan update for August 2021 is titled Intimate Partner Violence Screening and Referral by Primary Care Providers for Patients Enrolled in Medicaid. This analysis is being conducted by the Office of Evaluation and Inspections. Intimate partner violence, which includes physical, sexual, and psychological abuse, is a serious, preventable public health problem that affects millions of Americans. Primary care providers play a critical role in screening patients for intimate partner violence and referring patients who screen positive to support services. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, the USPSTF, has a recommendation that clinicians screen for intimate partner violence in women of reproductive age and provide or refer women who screen positive to ongoing support services. Despite this recommendation, primary care providers may encounter barriers to screening, including lack of knowledge, 
time constraints, and lack of adequate compensation. Medicaid expansion programs must provide coverage of certain preventive services recommended by the USPSTF, including screening for intimate partner violence, and states may opt to cover this preventive service in their traditional Medicaid programs. However, there are no specific procedure codes for providers to bill for time spent screening for intimate partner violence and making referrals to support services. So this evaluation will determine whether and how primary care providers who serve Medicaid enrollees screen for intimate partner violence and make referrals to support services. The OIG also expect this work to identify opportunities to improve the screening and referral practices. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2023. The seventh OIG work plan update for August 2021 is titled Audits of SAMHSA's Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic Expansion Grants. This audit is being conducted by the Office of Audit Services. Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinics, or CCBHCs, are designed to provide comprehensive 24-7 access to these three items. First, community-based mental health and substance use disorder services. Second, treatment of co-occurring disorders. And third, physical health care in one location. In federal fiscal year 2020, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, awarded CCBHC expansion grants totaling approximately $450 million to increase access to and improve the quality of community mental health and substance use disorder treatment services through direct services. This included $250 million appropriated by the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act. The OIG will determine whether SAMHSA followed its own policies and procedures for awarding and monitoring CCBHC expansion grants. In a separate audit, they will also determine whether CCBHC used expansion grant funds in accordance with federal requirements and applicable grant terms. These final reports are expected in fiscal year 2023. The eighth OIG work plan update is titled Audit of Medicare Part B Opioid Use Disorder Treatment Services Provided by Opioid Treatment Programs. It's an audit stemming from the Office of Audit Services. Substance use disorders involving drugs or alcohol can cause serious health problems and even death. Medication-assisted treatment is used to treat substance use disorders, including opioid use disorders, sustain recovery, and prevent overdoses. There are three medications to treat opioid use disorders. The first is buprenorphine, the second being methadone, and the third being naltrexone, all of which are approved by the FDA. Treatment for opioid use disorders is provided in several settings, including freestanding opioid treatment programs, or OTPs. Historically, OTPs could not enroll as providers in Medicare or be paid for services provided to Medicare beneficiaries. Section 2005 of the Substance Use Disorder Prevention that promotes opioid recovery and treatment for patients and communities act, the Support Act, established a new Medicare Part B benefit for opioid use disorder treatment services furnished by OTPs.
CMS implemented this benefit beginning in January of 2021, as required by the Support Act. Opioid use disorder treatment services include FDA-approved treatment medication, dispensing and administration of treatment, of treatment medications, substance use counseling, individual and group therapies, and toxicology testing. In this audit, the OIG will focus on claims for opioid use disorder treatment services provided by non-residential or freestanding OTPs, which are identified with the place of service code 58. They will also review opioid use disorder treatment services for Medicare patients in non-residential OTPs to determine whether the services were allowable in accordance with Medicare requirements. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2023. The ninth and final OIG work plan update for August 2021 is titled COVID-19 Increased FMAP State Eligibility Audit. It's an audit from the Office of Audit Services. The federal government pays its share of a state's Medicaid expenditures based on the Federal Medical Assistant Percentages, FMAPs, which vary depending on the state's per capita income. Although FMAPs are adjusted annually for economic changes in the states, Congress may increase FMAPs at any time. On March 18, 2020, the then-president signed into law the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, which provided a temporary 6.2 percentage point increase to each qualifying states and territories FMAP under Section 1905B of the Act, effective January 1, 2020. States must meet the requirements of Section 6008B and C of the FFCRA to qualify to receive the temporary 6.2 percentage point increase. The OIG plans to perform audit work at selected states to determine whether those states met the requirements to receive the temporary COVID-19 FMAP increase. The final report is expected in fiscal year 20. 22. Whoa. So my goodness, these nine, again, the OIG are never tired. They're always working, working on a myriad of audits and inspections, despite this very lengthy public state of emergency that we're all enduring. And with this Delta variant, the PHE may very much stay on into 2022. Now, of course, I understand this latest telehealth audit being conducted on the verification of established patient relationships with providers for certain services when conducted via telehealth. And even though there are these relaxations, CMS would like to understand what these relationships were during the pandemic. So, as I stated in last week's episode, spotlighting the new CBR the telehealth audits will be many because CMS gave the green light the go-ahead on the big, big relaxations early in the pandemic. It's now time for them to look closely, to investigate, to audit. Their audits are now in full swing, being unleashed one by one and resuming once again since they gave this green light also. They gave the go-ahead on this also. Now, the other big audit here that piques my interest is the audit for 
the emergency room visits. Another case for insisting that our providers' medical documentation for evaluation and management services, our ENM services, must remain compliant with guidelines, as well as capturing the complete medical picture of the patient. Remember that there is absolutely no distinction made between new and established patients in the emergency room setting. Medical documentation in the ER still follows the older evaluation and management guidelines, not the new 2021 guidelines established for only the office and outpatient setting. Not yet, anyways. These are all slated for overhaul in 2023. So, in my opinion, I always pass this critical information on to my providers who need it to review their coding and billing practices or their overarching compliance programs. I think these reports with findings are always most interesting and informative, and I always look forward to analyzing them in the years ahead. It's also important for my listeners to pay attention to these monthly OIG work plan updates to see how they may impact you, your provider, or your health system. So stay tuned for my monthly OIG work plan updates. They drop the second Wednesday of each month. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. So I thought I'd provide a new series of focused best practice tips with my back to basics. Today, I wanted to go over a few points on signature requirements. Now, for those of you that follow me on LinkedIn, you know I try and lighten the mood on Fridays and often provide my Friday funnies where I share cute comics. Of course, these are health-related comics, and one of the most enjoyed ones depicts those scrawly chicken scratches, those really illegible physician signatures. And of course, those of us in this space love our providers' scribbles. We've grown accustomed to them, and we understand the shorthand. Now, finally, right after all this time. However, when it comes to signature requirements, I think it's time that we all get back to basics. So why don't we start with the actual claim form, the actual HICFA or CMS 1500 claim form. The back of it has always, always, always provided language. Did you know there's a lot of fine print on the back of that claim form that you should all be aware of? Now, this is language that requires physician acknowledgement of their services as truly provided with signature capture. So I'm going to try and read some of the sections I think are very important um, of this fine red print, this red ink on the CMS 1500 claim form. Now, it says, quote, signature of physician or supplier, Medicare, TRICARE, FICA, and Black Lung. In submitting this claim for payment from federal funds, I certify that number one, the information on this form is true, accurate, and complete. I certify that number two, I have familiarized I have familiarized myself with all applicable laws, regulations, and program instructions which are available from the Medicare contractor. I certify that number three, I have provided or will provide sufficient information required to allow the government to make an informed 
eligibility and payment decision. I certify that number four, this claim, whether submitted by me or my behalf by my designated billing company, complies with all applicable Medicare and or Medicaid laws, regulations, and program instructions for payment, including, but not limited to, the federal anti-kickback statute and physician self-referral law, commonly known as Stark Law. I certify that number five, the services on this form were medically necessary and personally furnished by me or were furnished incident to my professional service by my employee under my direct supervision, except as otherwise expressly permitted by Medicare or TRICARE. I certify that number six, for each service rendered incident to my professional service, the identity, which is the legal name and NPI, license number, or social security number of the primary individual rendering each service is reported in the designated section. It goes on and says, for services to be considered incident to a physician's professional services, first, they must be rendered under the physician's direct supervision by his or her employee. Second, they must be an integral, although incidental, part of a covered physician's service. And third, they must be of kinds commonly furnished in physicians' offices. And fourth, the services of non-physicians must be included on the physician's bills. Now, the back of this claim form continues to go on, and it states, quote, Notice. Anyone who misrepresents or falsifies essential information to receive payment from federal funds requested by this form may, upon conviction, be subject to fine and imprisonment under applicable federal laws. Even later, it goes on and says, quote, Medicaid payments, provider certification. I agree to keep such records as are necessary to disclose fully the extent of services provided to individuals under the state's Title 19 plan and to furnish information regarding any payments claimed for providing such services as the state agency or Department of Health and Human Services may request. I further agree to accept as payment in full the amount paid by the Medicaid program for those claims submitted for payment under that program with the exception of authorized deductible, coinsurance, copayment, or similar cost-sharing charge. And lastly, it goes on and says signature of physician or supplier. I certify that the services listed above were medically indicated and necessary to the health of this patient and were personally furnished by me or my employee under my personal direction. Notice, this is to certify that the foregoing information is true, accurate, and complete. I understand that payment and satisfaction of this claim will be from federal and state funds and that any false claims, statements, or documents, or concealment of a material fact may be prosecuted under applicable federal or state laws. Now, my goodness, that's simply huge, right? Reading that out loud is huge. Incredible. Now, it's a basic, 
that we all need to keep in mind, fresh in our minds for the facts that signature capture is fundamental on all CMS 1500 claim forms. The language on the back of these forms clearly is indicative that you are attesting to government payers like Medicare and Medicaid that you truly and accurately performed the services rendered on the claim. But let's go further and dig just a little bit deeper. So in the Medicare Program Integrity Manual in Chapter 3, Section 3.3.2.4, it's titled Signature Requirements. Now you'll see that this section is applicable for Medicare Administrative Contractors, the MACs, the Unified Program Integrity Contractors, the UPICs, the Supplemental Medical Review Contractor, the SMERC, the Comprehensive Error Rate Testing, the CERT, as well as the Recovery Audit Contractors, the RACs. So this is also a very, very good place to understand what Medicare really wants. What do they expect when it comes to their review of medical records, of medical documentation? So it states, quote, for medical review purposes, Medicare requires the services provided, ordered, certified, be authenticated by the persons responsible for the care of the beneficiary in accordance with Medicare's policies. For example, if the physician's authenticated documentation corroborates the nurse's unsigned note and the physician was the responsible party per Medicare's payment policy, medical reviewers would consider signature requirements to have been met. The method used shall be a handwritten or electronic signature. Stamped signatures are not acceptable, end quote. The section goes on further and makes a note that scribes are not providers of items or services. So when a scribe is used by a provider in documenting medical record entries, like in their progress notes, CMS does not require the scribe to sign or date the documentation. It is the treating physicians or the treating non-physician practitioners, the NPP's signature on a note that indicates that the physician or NPP affirms the note adequately documents the care provided. Therefore, reviewers are only required to look for that signature of the physician or the NPP and not for the scribe. There are some exceptions, however, and there's four, so let's go over them. Exception number one, faxes of original or electronic signatures are acceptable for the certifications of terminal illness for hospice. Exception number two, there are some circumstances for which an order does not need to be signed. For example, orders for some clinical diagnostic tests are not required to be signed. The rules in 42 CFR 410 state that if the order for the clinical diagnostic test is unsigned, there must be medical documentation, like in that progress note, by the treating physician that he or she intended the clinical diagnostic test be performed. This documentation showing the intent that the test be performed must be authenticated by the author via a handwritten or electronic signature. And exception number three, other regulations and the CMS's instructions regarding conditions of payment related to signatures, 
such as timeliness standards for signatures take precedence. For medical review purposes, if the relevant regulation, NCD, LCD, and CMS manuals are silent on whether the signature needs to be legible or present, and the signature is illegible or missing, the reviewer shall follow the guidelines listed below to discern the identity and credentials, like if it's an MD or an RN, etc., for that particular author. In cases where the relevant regulation, NCD, LCD, and CMS manuals have specific signature requirements, those signature requirements take precedence. And finally, in exception number four, CMS would permit the use of a rubber stamp for signature in accordance with the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 in the case of an author with a physical disability that can provide proof to a CMS contractor of his or her inability to sign their signature due to their disability. So by affixing the rubber stamp, the provider is certifying that they have reviewed the document. The section goes on even further to the details of illegible handwritten signatures. Quote, if the signature is illegible, Max, UPIX, SMIRC, and CERT shall consider evidence in a signature log, attestation statement, or other documentation submitted to determine the identity of the author of a medical record entry. If the signature is missing from an order, Max, SMIRC, and CERT shall disregard the order during the review of the claim, which means the reviewer will proceed as if the order was not received. If the signature is missing from any other medical documentation other than the order, Max, SMIRC, and CERT shall accept a signature attestation from the author of the medical record entry. Another important point, in my opinion, is discussed a bit later in the section, and it says that providers should not add late signatures to the medical record beyond the short delay that occurs during the transcription process. Wow, I've only touched upon the basics of signature requirements. I've only touched upon the basics. My goodness, wow. So, these back to basics will hopefully, this little beginning here that I've provided will hopefully remind you that there's much more detailed work to adding these signature attestations and signature logs, right? Um, it's much more work later that's needed if these compliant signatures are not provided the first time. So that means you'll have to add corrections or delayed entries or amendments as well. But why? Why make it more difficult for yourself, more tedious? Best practice should always be to provide a compliant signature and date after your medical record entries. You're validating, you're authenticating the services you performed with that compliant signature. We must be mindful that our provider's clinical documentation is capturing complete accuracy of the patient's medical condition and that a proper signature is captured before we can correctly code. So a better, smarter approach is one that's proactive and starts by painting a clear, rich, and vibrant medical picture the first time 
so your certified medical coder can then abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, in this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from the French Cuban American author Anaïs Nin. When you possess light within, you see it externally. Absolutely right. I think this is an amazing quote that reminds us to see the illumination within ourselves. We all have that light, that brightness within us. It is because of that inner light that we can see the brightness all around us, outside of us. When we are illuminated from within, the possibilities for ourselves are limitless. I am happy Anais Nin's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. Please go out and make this a great day, an incredible week for yourselves. Aim a little higher, do a little more, and give back in any way you can in 2021. There's so much each one of us can do. Now, I know I continue to feel as though my life is stuck in a crazy science fiction movie with all of us walking around with masks and staying six feet or more away from stranger danger, but it is what it is. I know I continue doing all of this because I want to do my part. This new Delta variant is here. It's parked here for a while. So please try and stay vigilant. I know it's hard. We're all so very, very tired of this new normal, but let's do our part and keep washing up, masking up, and staying physically distant. As always, I appreciate you diving into today with me. And if you want more information from me, go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all during our collective seemingly never ever ending life and times of coronavirus. Thank you so much for listening in on today's episode. And I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday. Oh, 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 oh,